Hello and welcome to another episode of the Golden Hour Podcast. I'm your host, David Altizer. And I'm Connor McCaskill. And today we're talking about the Lumix system. Is it time to switch? What are the top 10 things to know about using the S5 II and the 2X, which Connor and I have both been using for the last couple months? We also talk about the Hollyland wireless system, and Connor and I nerd out about Nintendo Switch. So for the last couple of weeks, I've been doing a lot of freelance filming. I have kind of been out of that world for a while now, thanks to Soundstripe, Indie Mogul, my cousins, YouTube. And unfortunately, as of right now, it seems that my kind of retainer client Soundstripe, where I was making about four videos a month, uh, is kind of gone now. Mm. So we'll have to kind of cross our fingers and see if that comes back or not. Honestly, I'm thankful for the year that I had there, but uh, moving on from there, I'm just kind of doing random freelance jobs. And I've done a bunch of shoots recently using my Lumix S5 II system. Now, being a YouTuber full-time is a very specific type of creator and type of filmer or DP, if you want to call it, because often you're filming yourself and you're also on camera. Mm -hmm. And the way that we've worked over the last couple of years when you and I have done videos, I don't even use the camera at all. I'm always on camera and maybe I'll give you direction or because I know how to use a camera, I'll help you with settings or give you a suggestion or whatever. But you're operating, Connor. Right. And I'm never behind the camera. So the camera actually itself kind of almost didn't really matter all that much because the way that we would shoot is there was always a shooter behind camera. When, when you say that, you mean in terms of like being a solo creator, it didn't matter mm-hmm. if it had things like a flip screen, for example, that didn't wouldn't have bothered us uh, for our own content creation specifically because like you said, I would typically be operating. However, if it didn't have a flip screen and we were reviewing it, we would have complained. We always <laughs> yeah, complain exactly. if there's not a flip screen. <laughs> always complaining. Yeah, al- always complaining. That's the role of a YouTuber. But um, <laughs> But I think that's more what you mean, right? Yeah, and and because of the work I did with my cousins about two years ago, doing a ton of courses and running gun shooting for them, I used the C70 almost every day with them. And I really got to know that camera well and really do love that camera in a lot of ways. But with the S5 II, I haven't really put it through its paces and I haven't really even used a hybrid camera in a, in a while because I had the C70 for the last two years now. And so these last couple of months doing these freelance jobs... I've really grown to kind of love the Lumix system and a lot of the features that it has. And so in this episode of the podcast, Connor and I are going to share some of the 10 things that we think you guys should know about the system, some of the things that we've learned, some of the things that are bad about it, some of the things that are good, some of the things that Lumix can maybe continue to work on as they develop this system into the future. And Overall, I think it's a pretty positive change for me going from Canon to Panasonic now with the Lumix. And like Connor and I have said in the past, Lumix kind of just had one feature that really was kind of the issue, and it was always the autofocus. And I don't necessarily think the autofocus is by any means perfect yet, um, but it is certainly usable for the most part. Would you agree, Connor? I'd say it's more than usable. I I have not had the same experience as you, I think, when it comes to autofocus. I mean, you've been so actually, you know, full disclosure, I'm using the Canon R6 Mark II for my camera right now. uh, And you've been using the Lumix uh, S5 
X? Two. Uh, 2X? Yeah, I'm using the X right now, but I okay. was also previously using the 2 before I had the X, obviously. Right. Um, and if you guys have watched these podcast videos, you may have noticed that sometimes my focus just gets kind of wonky. Yeah. And I think it's a combination of a lot of things. The headphones I'm wearing, the glasses I wear, mm-hmm. the hat on my head, and the microphone in front of my mouth. <laughs> so right. I think all those things come together to give a bit of a challenge to the Lumix where Sony and Canon have seemed to really just nailed the fact that it's just locking on your eye, even if you have glasses, even if you're wearing a hat, all those things. Yeah, because I've been using the S5-2X for the A-roll shots of my YouTube videos, and it I just fully trust it, and I have not seen it hunt at all. Yeah, let me just say this. Um, I, my issues with the autofocus have just been, I, f- I feel like this really does show the fact that this is a first-generation phase detect autofocus system from Panasonic. They've had a decent tracking system with even their older cameras, but the problem was that the focus just didn't work at all. So (laughs) you will always have a little box around your head with no problem. It would track your face and even your eye with the little crosshairs. With the GH5, it seemed to work well. And any of the newer cameras like the original S5, they seemed to track well and everything looked like it was working. But when you would look at the footage back, you would just see this pulsating going on in the background uh, continuously. And it was really distracting. So we've completely eliminated the pulsating and the kind of weird autofocus issues that the older Panasonic systems have had. But now it just seems like they need to continue to work on the just locking on the face and staying on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like I just mentioned, the fact that I'm wearing glasses, a hat, headphones, and there's a microphone in front of my mouth. I think all those things are sort of throwing it off a little bit. But one of my biggest criticisms of the autofocus, and let's go ahead and just put this as our number one thing to talk about, I guess. Yeah, uh, we, we, we had- rolled right into it, didn't we? We have 10 things to talk about, and the first one is autofocus. So with my time using this camera, as a YouTuber, when we went to Japan, it was kind of no problem. We actually were really surprised with how reliable it was. But every time we were shooting, it was just me in the shot, and that was it. (laughs) So it was usually, you know, maybe there were some people in the background and stuff. But for the most part, it was pretty clean. It was either me or you in the shot. And also, Connor, I think... It's important to know, too, in my review, we actually used your R6 Mark II as our kind of primary camera, and I was holding the S5 II in the video. So we didn't use the S5 II as much. So I think our perspective was maybe a little skewed in that way. Did we, um, not to interrupt you too much here, but didn't, I had one, too. I had an S5 Mm -hmm. II um, that they lent to me. uh, The second day. The second day. So we didn't use it the first day. Correct. Okay. Yeah, but, I, I couldn't quite remember that. And I think I think you, if I'm going to be honest too, I think that that was like right when you got the R6 Mark II. So in a way you wanted to kind of use it and kind of see how <laughs> see how it operated and right. see how it looked. Um, and I was also curious too with the R6. I was like, is this going to be, I was even thinking like, it'd be cool if this looked as good as a C70 or something. I was thinking it'd be better. Um, it's kind of equal to R5. It's, it's a little better in low light. But. It's like... It's like the most okay Canon camera. It's, a mid. it's, it's so a mid. it's it is. It's so mid. I mean, we weren't planning on talking about this, but I let me rant for just a second. It's like they they almost made a really good camera with the R6 Mark II, right? Cuz it has all the like when you read it on paper, you're like this is going to be fantastic. But then when you actually start using it, you keep running into these like um little problems, you know, that the camera 
Um, and I do want to say we're also referring to for video because yes. my cousins are using it as primary photographers and they are like over the moon with the right. camera. They think it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I, I, obviously, we are videographers, so I'm coming at that from a videography perspective. Um, and it, it does have all these like little problems, especially for me, because a lot of my work uh, for commercial work has turned into live video production. And essentially, this camera is almost useless to me uh, for that. In fact, it is useless. We, I keep it in my bag until um, we need to do B-roll pickups because I can't HDMI out to um, stream it because I use, I mean, we'll talk about these later, but I was, I'm using transmitter units to stream it to the video village and I can't use those and record internal because we always want to record an tr- internal backup. Uh, especially because a lot of times we do um, uh, recap videos as well for these um, live productions. Um, and so I, I have to keep this camera in my bag. So this, that's one specific example. But this R6 Mark II, man, has it been like, I I just don't, I just don't care for it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think um, as we go down the list of the things, and as I ex- talk about my experience with it too, I, I've found that the Lumix S5 II and the 2X, obviously they're both very similar, really give us everything that we want in in everything when a hi- with a hybrid camera. With live streaming, it's got a full-size HDMI. There's no limitations when you're using the HDMI out. The autofocus is acceptable, although we're still on that topic here. but still on it. And I think that that can be part of our summary at the end here. But so back to the autofocus topic real quick, when I'm using it as a YouTuber and it's just me on camera, it's kind of useful. I mean, it's, it's pretty useful and it doesn't seem to have that many issues, but when you bring this into a wedding environment, which was the first time I ever used it was, Mm -hmm. uh, two weeks ago, I started to see the autofocus limitations. And I think it really comes down to just the software. And the issue was, if there were more than one subject in the frame, which for a wedding, there's often a lot of people in the frame. And for this particular wedding that I was filming, there was like 15 groomsmen and 15 bridesmaids. So it was insane. Wow. And all these different faces, they're all looking at the camera because they're doing different poses and, and stuff. And I'm just getting B-roll. And man, the box thing that the Lumix has, basically whenever a subject is in the frame, it puts a box around that person. It's called human tracking mode. So it's just looking for humans and it puts boxes around them. I was so just completely like confused and uh, almost like it was jarring to look at how many boxes were just bopping around all over the screen. And I would select, you know, the groom like, or the bride, you know, I want to, I want to focus on them obviously. Right. But all these other groomsmen and bridesmaids just coming up into the frame and the boxes would just kind of appear everywhere. They pop in, pop out, pop in, pop out. And they would like the yellow uh, indicator is what is being tracked. And then the other boxes are white. And I wasn't pushing anything. I was in the continuous autofocus mode with human tracking turned on and it would literally just like bounce around to different subjects over and over and it would just the yellow indicator would bounce to a random bridesmaid and then a a groomsman in the front of the frame and then the bride again and then the groomsman and the bride and i don't know if the footage is going to look like that i don't know if the footage is going to literally just be the autofocus going bananas but it was completely discombobulating to look at and very distracting and it got so bad for me at a certain point 
especially during the ceremony where I just needed a nice locked off shot with my 70 to 200 and you've got all these bridesmaids and groomsmen in the shot. It was just going nuts. And I just have a very stable shot. I just want to track on the groom. That's it. I was just like, screw it. I'm just going to manual focus. And so I went into manual focus and the Lumix system has had this feature for years, but um, it's a push AF button and you can just move the, the end, you know, the selecting point to say the groom's face, which is what I did. Just a small little box on the frame. I put, put it on the groom's head. I hit push AF. It did autofocus onto his face because that's where I put the selector point and then it just stayed still and it didn't, didn't do anything from there on. So because the focus peaking is so great on the Lumix system, and it's also got that feature where you start to rotate the barrel and it'll actually zoom in on wherever your selector box is. I found myself using manual focus from that point on to the rest of the night for the most part, mm. because the just amount of faces that I was filming, uh, whether it was in the reception or during the cocktail hour or during the photos, it was just so much going on with the human tracking that it just completely was discombobulating. I was just like, screw it. I'm just going to manual focus with focus peaking. And it worked great in that way. But, you know, when we would go out with the bride and groom, I switched back to the standard autofocus mode. And, and because it was only two subjects with a grassy background, like we had no issues. You know, the, the face tracking just stayed pretty locked and pretty solid. And, um, yeah, so that was a bit of an issue. And then I did a corporate shoot with the camera on a tripod, similar thing again, where it's just on a 70 to 200 zoomed in and people are on a stage, but it wanted to select the back of the heads of the people watching the, the, the show, you know, hmm. instead of the people on the stage. And I it just kept kind of going crazy again. And so again, I went into manual focus and just had to kind of rely on that or, Instead of the wide tracking area, which is what you would use on a Canon or Sony, you just on a Canon or Sony, you just keep it on wide tracking and then you just touch the head of the person you want to track and it basically just stays glued to it um, forever for the most part. Uh -huh. um, and on the Panasonic, I just decided to switch to the selectable area mode so you can actually select like a certain region of the frame only to track and that kind of helped in avoiding the backs of the heads of the people. But yeah, the human tracking mode gave me some issues with all these different people. And maybe the face and eye tracking mode only would have been what I should go into here. But I just feel like, it, again, the, these are kind of the growing pains of a new system that's actually reliable and useful with phase detect. But the software with all this tracking and stuff just needs some serious work. And I think Sony and Canon are just way ahead of them with like AI tracking. I mean, if you look at Sony with their new stuff, the A7R5 has some of the best tracking I've ever seen right. where it's not only using phase detect to, you know, get good clean uh, autofocus moves, but it's able to determine the full body of a human and use AI to determine this is the head, these are the hands, these are the legs. And when that person walks away, we know that that is that person. Again, the, the Lumix does have human tracking mode, but I just found that it was tracking every human in the frame and it was just going crazy. Yeah, I totally agree. I think one of the things that we noticed, I mean, immediately on our first use in Japan um, was that it was like the OS felt overwhelming would be the word that I would use. Basically, it leaves you feeling relatively, like you said, if, you're, if there's multiple sub potential subjects in the frame, 
um, it leaves you feeling uh, un- in, not confident in the camera in terms of like, there's just so much happening on the screen. You're like, well, what's it doing? Like what's, what's happening? What is it actually deciding on? Am I actually in control? And maybe we are, it's just, it feels like you're not right. Um, so I, I do agree. I think that the operating system is probably the weakest point of the Lumix S5 two system in the two X. Is that our next point? The this, operating system? This actually is. So it does work out. It's like, you know, uh, you know, we, we kind of talked about autofocus. Now let's, let's really dive into the OS. I think one thing that the good thing about the operating system being its biggest flaw, in my opinion, is that that feels the most fixable. Um, with just like a firmware update. So, and you know, we know the guys at Lumix, they're very savvy and they seem to listen a lot to feedback, which is fantastic. So I would not be surprised if we get a decent sized firmware update that hopefully helps to minimize those issues that we brought up. One way that I think, you know, just for feedback that maybe they could fix this is let's say that you have it selected on a subject, i.e. let's just pretend me and there's someone else back here and instead of putting a box on the person back here as well maybe you could just put arrows on the left and the right of your box or maybe just on the side that the person's on right and then if you push on the joystick the box will move now to this person but then there'll be an arrow pointing this way just letting you know hey we see that there's a person over there we acknowledge that but we're not going to overwhelm you with too many things to look at It's just an idea. I don't know if it's a good one or not. I think Canon honestly does something kind of similar, although I think they'll still put a box on the face of the other person. It's just grayed out, which is also an idea. You could just do a simple like lower opacity box around the other people. It was interesting that you said that it was able to detect that those were people, though, in the audience just by the back of their head. That does indicate to me that their their way of detecting humans is very advanced, which is great. So... It obviously is very good at understanding these are people, which is fantastic. Like you said, though, it's just a little, it's just a little too much. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, um, and I, I do want to just wrap up the autofocus um, t- discussion to say the manual focus focus peaking is great. Um, the ability to go into you know selecting just a region of the frame to focus on did help. Mm-hmm. And what I'm using right now is the autofocus limiter feature. So basically, as I'm sitting here with this microphone, I have the focus set to my A point is essentially the microphone, then my B point is slightly beyond the back of my head. And Mm -hmm. so the camera will not go beyond any region within this little bubble of, of space. And so hopefully you guys can comment down below. I'm not really looking at my image too, too much because we do do this cheating thing where we're looking in the lens of the camera as we talk. But technically, I'm my laptop is down here. And so if I want to look at Connor, I have to look down. But technically, I am just pretending to look through the lens. So I don't really know if it's if it's working or not. But that's a way to fix it. And another great feature of the focus on this, and a lot of these things have been in Lumix cameras for years now. It's just new to us. And I think it's important to, to talk about as people are starting to maybe switch to Lumix is the fact that with um, with an electronic lens like this, you can actually lock where the focus was last when you turn the camera off. All these cameras are, you know, all the modern lenses are focused by wire. Mm-hmm. And one of the issues with Canon and Jim Cook, who I shot this wedding with, um, kind of mentioned this, he like checked his focus on the Canon for a certain shot, like during the ceremony, he, he locked off where the groom would be standing. 
And then he turned off the camera. He's like, ah, man, yeah, I forgot. Every time I turn the camera on, I have to reset the focus. Yep. And I was like, not on the Lumix. Because you could basically set your focus. And then it basically just remembers exactly where that measurement is. Uh, and just, you know, just locks straight to it. It's a great feature. I think it's called focus focus lock or something on turn off. You can, it's a feature you can turn on and off. Right. Um, so the Lumix just has a lot of stuff, even though the autofocus has some work, I think they've also got a lot of tools <laughs> that have been developed over the years to essentially be a bandaid for the issues that they've had for years, like great manual focus features, like the focus limiting feature, which I'm using right now, like the, you know, snap to focus feature when you turn the camera on and off. And then there's also um, like a focus pan mode where you can set an A and a B point and do like a focus rack. Mm -hmm. Basically, with the camera, you can adjust the speed of the rack. So there's a lot of really cool features that I've never seen in in other cameras. And again, I think it's because Lumix is needed uh, more than what most people have because their focus system was lacking in the video department for so long. I also think that the reason why they have to have more than, let's say, Canon or Sony is the fact that they're not Canon or Sony. They Canon, uh, especially, I mean, they can get away with a lot because they've always been, well, maybe not always, but for a long time, they've been like the biggest brand on the block. Sony has really come up in a lot of ways recently, and I think now they're kind of the biggest brand on the uh, brand around right now. Um, at least in our world of the YouTube space, uh, content, online content. Um, so if P Lumix is going to be able to convince people, it's like, hey, ignore those big brands, right? You want to you wanna be on Team Lumix. In order to do that, they have to do things better or more interestingly than Sony or Canon is doing them. Obviously, they try to do that with a lot of th these fancy features like you brought up, which are very cool, but we we already kind of talked about it but the the focus was really always the limiting factor it's not really as much of a limiting factor now and personally i've really had no issue with the autofocus yet although i am just one person filming myself with the camera so very easy for the camera to accomplish that dave used it in a more realistic setting and had some issues so take that into into mind but i just think it's really cool that lumix is now finally feeling less like it's lagging behind and starting to maybe become one of the top dogs. We'll see. Yeah. I think for so many years we were so used to using manual focus as cinematographers and autofocus was almost like an afterthought or something that a lot of people poo pooed. Um, and then obviously the dual pixel autofocus from Canon and of course the phase detect systems from Sony have just advanced at such a rapid rate that we're at a point now where it's so reliable and so useful that I think we've become a little lazy with the way that we focus because you really just tap the thing and it's perfect. Um, back in the day, we, we'd have to magnify the image and check the focus a bunch of times, use monitors, use loops, all these different things. So if you use a monitor, if you use those features and use focus peaking, you can, which you can do all with this camera that can just kind of help, you know, justify the fact that it's, or, or that can at least help you verify that it's all in focus. And like Connor said, the focus system does work. It works well, but there are some limitations. I think they just have some more work to do with, with software and the only direction they can go is up you know, it's not going to get worse. It's not going to go back to how it was. That's for sure. So I think as they continue to advance and as they continue to push, I think it will get better. And this is my feedback, you know, everything that we just listed. Now, yeah. on the operating system you were talking about, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about 
with the OS just in general, the menus, the layout, some of the features that they have like shutter angle waveforms, right. you know, I find those just so incredibly useful um, with the operating system, with the UI. Right. Is there anything that you don't like or that you do love about the user interface operating system on this camera? You know, I think, um, you know me, my brain obviously immediately goes to the negatives. Um, that's just how my brain processes things first. Um, so whenever I'm using the Lumix system, uh, it kind of is feeling like when I'm in the menus, it feels like old Sony menus in a way. Sony menus have gotten a lot better. They're still Sony menus, but they've gotten a lot better. These Lumix menus, I mean, it just feels like, again, maybe overwhelming is the word I would use. I don't know if it's so much a bad thing because it's like they're giving you just so many options, which is great in a lot of ways, but maybe if they could do like a, a simplified menu system um, option or something, I don't know. It's just, it feels like whenever I'm going into the menus, I could be in there for uh, way too many minutes, like looking for a particular thing or just, you know, exploring as well. Cause there's just so much to see. So again, I think, I think the menu system could use some refreshing, which would be great. But you're right, it does have things like shutter angle. And it has things like waveforms, which are things that should just become standards in all these cameras. I don't understand why we're not giving those features to all these cameras. I mean, it, it, I, I can't imagine that it's very hard to add shutter angle to any camera. It, it is a specific choice that Sony and Canon and whoever else is making. And it feels like they're making those choices to protect their higher end cameras. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it comes back to the fact that we benefit from the fact that Panasonic seems to just be putting everything in these hybrid systems because that's really what they're, they're, they're trying to compete with Canon and Sony. So we benefit from the fact that they are competing. So they're, they're, they've added a lot of features that are cutting edge and they're pushing in. And again, you know, like we mentioned, we are friends with full disclaimer. We are friends with Matt and Sean from Panasonic, but one of the cool things about those guys is that they're real video guys. They understand it. And so, you know, when we talk about these features that we need as video shooters, they really understand because they themselves are video nerds <laughs> just like us. And they get it too. They they And they really hear us and listen to what we're saying, which is awesome. Um, and I agree. I think every Canon camera should have shutter and go waveforms. Every Sony camera should have those features too. But especially the the you know r the well the r5c does have it it's mm -hmm. got a cinema badge on it so i guess for from canon's perspective if it's got a c stamp on it then they'll do it um with sony it doesn't seem like the cine line includes that because you look at the fx30 and the fx3 and they don't have it but they do have what you just mentioned which is a nice simplified cinema kind of menu system they've got this new kind of almost like airy like or black magic camera simplified menu with just like big clickable buttons on it. Mm -hmm. And the Lumix does have a wonderful mode. If you've ever, I don't know if you've ever run through it, but if you hit the display mode and you go all the way to the end, there is a mode that is just like an, it almost looks like a traditional cinema camera where it just shows you a screen with all your settings and it's mm. really laid out really well. Yeah. And you can see your levels and you can see what frame rate you're shooting on. And it's basically the perfect companion to if you're using a monitor on your system. So if you're using an external monitor, you can just change your camera display to this big, bold, simplified settings display. And it's a really cool, um, you know, layout and display mode. So I would love to see that 
as a menu as well with like maybe very you know customizable but also very simplified streamlined cinema you know settings that you can maybe just tap and change and yeah, stuff i almost feel like i want to be greeted with something that's pretty simple because for the most part we're not changing massive features you know all the time um but then you maybe hit another button and then it can go into those deeper menus so it's just like here's your you know, here's your friendly settings, the settings that you're going to change all the time. And then, oh, we actually, we need to dive deeper. Okay, hit this button. Now you're in those full menus and you can go in and find those extra things that you need. That would be cool. Um, but it's just feedback. I mean, technically there's nothing wrong with how they've done it. It's just, uh, it could see improvement. Um, but like we were talking about, it, we do have a lot of options. And one of those options that we have is the third topic for us is resolutions. Yes. Uh, this camera is absolutely packed with resolution options. Can you break that down, Dave? So the big headline feature with the S5 II, of course, is the open gate 6K 3x2 aspect ratio. It's it's higher and it's taller than your traditional cinema, you know, 4K mode or 16x9 mode, which gives you more room to crop vertically. It's basically reading the whole sensor, uh, which a lot of these hybrid cameras, obviously, because they're photography cameras, they've got a little bit more height than a 16 by nine crop would be. Because when you take a picture, it's closer to a square than, you know, a, a small rectangle like 16 by nine. But for many years, and with other manufacturers, they're just cropping in on the sensor and not using the top and not using the bottom. Panasonic a couple years ago with the GH5, they said, hey, use all of it. <laughs> so yeah, I love this. And I, I hope that this is a trend moving forward that we'll see in other cameras. But particularly with, with, with Lumix, this seems to be part of their philosophy. And I wouldn't, you know, I, I would expect that they would continue to, to do this with future models. So the fact that they give us all those different resolutions from 6K all the way down to 1080p, at every kind of variable method that you can think of with tons of different codec options. And if you get the S5 2X, you can even shoot in ProRes internally, mm -hmm. which is nuts. You can do a raw output on both. If you pay for the upgrade on the S5 II, it does bring the price to the same price as the S5 2X. So if you think you're going to need raw out of the HDMI, I would recommend just getting the X anyways. Plus it's all black and it looks cool. Yeah. I mean, um, look at this. <laughs> and, you know, I personally don't need to shoot ProRes. I messed around with it a little bit. I don't necessarily see much of a difference between that and H.265. And now that I'm using an Apple Silicon Mac, mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, shooting HEVC or H.265 is the best option for compact, you know, file size, but still maintaining a 422 10-bit color space, which, by the way, on all modes, you can select with the exception of open gate. I believe you're limited to 10-bit 420, not 422. Mm -hmm but not a huge deal. You can just go down to 4K if you need with a traditional uh, cinema 4K mode if you need 422. And it's also got the anamorphic shooting options, which um, is limited to a Super 35 crop. It's not a full frame anamorphic mode, but when you do go into that crop, it's a true four by three anamorphic mode, which means you can use traditional 2X cinema lenses. Obviously the Atlas Orion lenses are kind of the real industry standard right now. And uh, with Soundstripe, I know I mentioned that at the beginning of the show, but with Soundstripe, I did get to experiment with those lenses, which are fantastic lenses. They're being used everywhere in Hollywood right now Yeah, on the Lumix S5 II. And it looked incredible. A true 2X anamorphic lens, an amazing piece of glass. You know, it's a 
$10,000 lens on the camera, but it paired beautifully. Ironically, and that is it. pretty cheap for an anamorphic lens. Um, yes. Yeah. When we say $10,000, I think the new one, uh, I just saw Cam, Mackie mm -hmm. and Armando were using them recently. Um, it's think, full frame. Full frame. It's I think. 1.5x right so it's not a true 2x but true um, true it still has beautiful bokehs and flares and stuff so um but the point i was going to make is i think those are eight grand which is even cheaper so i guess hopefully we're, we'll see the the quality of those lenses because i mean the quality looks amazing uh and that price point hopefully will keep coming down i mean that's how tech works um so um but yes it is really amazing that this little dinky boy uh can do all those amazing uh resolution specs and like you said the anamorphic d squeeze internal i mean they they really were like here is everything more or less almost everything it actually one of the things that um if we're talking about resolution and in frame rate it does have a 4k 60 crop or 4k 50 if you're in europe um a little bit of a downer but honestly i i, I it's not that big of a deal. I mean, it's not ideal, but when you consider everything else that you're getting, it's like there always needs to be a compromise with things, right? Uh, yeah. We know and there's... I, think, I would imagine that with a future camera, they're going to fix this, you know, with the flagship uh, S2H or whatever. So this is just a limitation of the S5 system, which, by the way, this is a new sensor in here, but it's very similar to the original S5. So it is carrying over some of the downsides technology wise as the S5. And that was one of the issues. 4K 60 has an APS-C crop on it. Right. And um, so that's something to keep in mind with the S5 2X. But like I said, I don't know that it's the biggest deal in the world considering everything else that it provides. So next would be IBIS. And if you've been following camera reviews for a while now, Panasonic has been one of the best, if not the best, in terms of IBIS performance for many years. And of course, that does carry through here. In fact, with a full frame body, this is the best IBIS I've ever used. It's better than Sony. It's better than Canon. Mm -hmm. And the, the reason it's better is not only does the stabilization of the sensor moving around inside of the body look pretty good, but the digital stabilization that they apply to that takes a lot of the wobble and warping out you can still see it, uh, especially on wide angle lenses. Uh, we had some issues early on with like 20 millimeter lenses that are beyond that kind of had some of that warpy wobble stuff, but they did fix that with a firmware update. But if we're comparing it to Canon all the way through Canon's lineup from the most expensive R3 down to the R6 Mark II down to the, even the R7, the IBIS from Canon is just really warpy wobbly and it just does not look natural. I would turn it off when I would use a gimbal often um, and not a huge fan of it. Sony doesn't have as much warping and wobbling, but that's also because they just don't have much stabilization going on in general. Now, in a way, that's a good thing because it really is subtle. It just takes out those issues, those little kinks and jiggles, <laughs> but you still need to use a gimbal. It's still something that is there to assist you, but it's not necessarily creating a smooth, fluid shot with it. And that's where, you know, Catalyst Browse comes in if you really want to use it from Sony. Right. Well, Panasonic built in, their IBIS system is phenomenal. And back to the wedding that I shot a couple of weeks ago, I was just amazed at how stable the IBIS was. And the way that Jim Cook shoots, the guy that we shoot with, he uses a gimbal prim the primary, like primarily all day. And 
I noticed that he was using a gimbal kind of like a monopod just on his leg just to stabilize the camera. And I was like, I don't need that. <laughs> so I just took the camera off the gimbal and just handheld it and was so impressed with how stable and fluid the footage was straight out of the camera without a gimbal, without an easy rig, without a monopod. It's really kind of exactly what I've been wanting for years is just a really stable platform that allows me to not need a monopod anymore. I, I think it's kind of amazing. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I haven't used it to the extent that you've used it um, in terms of handheld, but I will say that it does look really good. I think Sony's, like you said, is really nice. Um, it, it There is something nice about how subtle it, it is in a way. Uh, it's almost like sometimes we're doing too much um, and, mm. you know, then it's everything starts to look like if you ever use like Warp Stabilizer in Premiere, and you, you use it, you use too much, everything starts to go, you know, turn into a little bit of the jello city. Uh, sometimes it can feel like that with ibises as well. Um, but it's just baked into your footage. Um, so that's, yeah. a, that's sad. But uh, I, the ibis in the Lumix system, as far as I'm aware, is probably the best. They've also got an anamorphic ibis mode, which no other company even has. So if you're using an anamorphic lens, you dial in what the focal length is and what the stretch factor is of that lens, mm. which is all customizable. And it will tune the stabilization to that lens with anamorphic. So again, back to that Soundstripe video, we were hand-holding the camera using a big Atlas Orion lens, but it was stabilized and it actually looked pretty pretty good. Obviously, using a monopod, an easy rig, a gimbal, those things still are necessary. I don't think it replaces those things. It just can be a lot easier to get those handheld shots if needed. But obviously, if you're holding the camera out with your arms, your arms are just going to get tired at a certain point. So if it's a lot of just standing still, like what Jordan Drake does for Petapixel, he uses a monopod because Chris Nichols is standing there talking for, you know, maybe 10 minutes. So like, there's no reason for you to hold the camera out that entire time. Unless you're me, in which case you, I just hold the camera the entire That's what time. You do. I, That's uh, true. Every time we do shoots, you're just standing there holding the camera. Yeah, I do the <laughs> double elbow into my sides and then I just hold the camera uh, and I hold it as, as relatively still as I can. I don't know what it is. It's, I, I hate monopods. Hate them. I think it's just well, another thing to carry. I just don't like carrying things. So I was like, I'll just hold the camera. It'll be fine. Well, that, I think that's a good segue into gimbal use. And I think you wanted to talk on that. Yeah. I mean, just one quick point about um, the S52X or S52 when it comes to gimbals. This has to do with their lenses. The lens, I don't have one on me right now, but the, the, the lenses that they have, those like 1.8 primes, they're amazing because they're roughly the same weight and they're the same size. So I can load it up on my RS3 Pro and balance once. And then if I want to switch my lenses and you still use primes, I can just change it out. And the gimbal's plenty strong enough to make up for those micro weight differences. So it is a lovely uh, gimbal setup, especially with primes. Now, obviously you can, you know, load a, a zoom lens on there and that's great because then you get the flexibility of zooming in and out as you need, which a lot of times is very useful um, when you're on a gimbal and you don't necessarily know what's going on and you need to be flexible. But I do love the fact that I can use those primes and switch them out as I need them and I don't have to rebalance because rebalancing is the worst part of using a gimbal. Absolutely. And I think back to the IBIS 
with the gimbal, I, I would experiment. If you want to play around with this experiment, turning just the Ibis on and then using the gimbal, see how that looks. Uh, see if it looks a little funky. The Ibis is designed to have some movement. It's not just designed to be locked off, mm-hmm. but there is an act like a, a super mega, I forget what it's called. Maybe like tripod mode or enhanced stabilization mode. And that is designed to essentially simulate a tripod. So you, you don't want to turn that on. That's for when you're, that's when Connor's standing there with his elbows jammed into his, his stomach. That's what that feature is for is to keep it completely locked off. Right. But, um, with the electronic stabilization and with the IBIS, it is designed to have a little bit of movement. So you pair that with a gimbal and it may be just like a nice buttery smooth move because the IBIS may get some of those little footsteps out. But I would worry that it would also create some of that weird warpiness. I would almost rather have some imperfections in a gimbal shot. So, I typically in the past would turn off IBIS if I'm using a gimbal, but it's getting so good now that maybe do some experimentation and see if that is actually a good combination. I'm not sure. I use IBIS on my gimbal uh, because a lot of times what I'm doing for these large shoots is I, I'm i holding the dang thing all day. So I'm, my arms get tired. So even using a gimbal, I'm not like the most precise. I mean, let's face it. Um, and sometimes I'm doing the thing where I'm holding the gimbal up over my head and I'm just kind of walking around and I walk, you know, relatively still, but occasionally I still get those little blips. And when you're live, you can't like, that's just what it is. So I turn on the IBIS and it does seem to help. Um, so I'm able to be a little more free with how I'm walking and using the gimbal and I don't have to, you know, have those nice little ninja steps. I can kind of, I can kind of be a little more experimental, um, so I, I use Ibis on Gimbal okay. and it, it works out fine. Sweet. Maybe we should do a video comparing. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, so you were talking about lenses, those great L mount, um, primes from Panasonic. I think that leads us to our next topic, which is the L mount system. Now, if you're not familiar, Panasonic has gone into collaboration with Leica, with Sigma and themselves. And the three of them are essentially designing lenses for this ecosystem together. Right. And the L mount stands for Leica mount. So, I mean, it's a Panasonic camera, but they're literally, you know, letting the word Leica be, you know, part of their branding here. And Lumix and uh, Leica have a real partnership. I think in a lot of ways, Panasonic helps Leica and vice versa. You can see that a lot with even Leica's own cameras. And we talked about this with Kai, with the Leica Q. I wonder how much of the Q3 is just a lot of Panasonic stuff built into it. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of it is just Panasonic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it did inherit the phase detect system uh, for the first time. So and it does those make boxes. Me think, those boxes, those boxes are showing up. Absolutely. So, um, there's some pros and cons to the L mount. The pro is that we do have a lot of options from Sigma. I mean, again, I'm coming from Canon, which there are no other options except Canon. But if you compare the L mount system to Sony, it's nowhere near as, as robust and affordable as well. Um, Panasonic's cheap lenses actually aren't all that cheap. They're, they're decently priced, but they're not like in the $100 category. Um, like Canon has some really, really dirt cheap lenses. I would love to see some, some cheap lenses for beginners. Sigma does have a lot of options available, but Leica obviously is way wildly overpriced. So, you know, unless you're rolling in the money, 
Um, you're not going to be putting a Leica lens on a Panasonic body. And that does go into their pro line as well. Uh, Lumix has their own pro lenses that they badge as pro. I guess that would be like the G Master or the L series equivalent from Canon and Sony, mm-hmm. respectively. So um, the pro lenses are phenomenal. The, it seems like the optics are great, but they all seem really big. And they are designed in partnership with Leica. So those are, I was told, essentially Leica optics uh, in a Panasonic housing, which is really cool. So if you want a real just turnkey pro system, I would probably just go all uh, Lumix Pro lenses. But it's a little limiting. They don't have a 16-35 to 2.8. It's a 16-35 to F4. But um, Sigma has a, I think it's like a 16-28 to 2.8. So that's kind of your option there if you want 2.8. Um you know, it's great that there are options. And I think Sigma, again, is probably your best bet for getting a 24 to 70 from them. It's a thousand dollars cheaper than the pro lens from Panasonic. Um, I do love the F1.8 primes. That's what Connor and I both use, but full disclaimer, both of us received those lenses true. Uh, for free. So, you know, take that for a grain of salt. I think if I were purchasing one lens or two, I would probably get Sigma zooms. I think they, there's a wonderful 20, like I said, 24 to 70 F 2.8. I've heard a lot of good things. It's the same one that a lot of people who shoot on Sony use. And then I would probably pick up the 16 to 28, uh, from Sigma as well. It's nice, compact wide angle zoom. So there's a lot of options. I think Sigma will continue to make more. I would love to see Lumix fill out their lineup. Lumix themselves don't have a ton of options that are Lumix branded. We'd love to see more options in the more affordable categories. They're just working on it. And of course, Leica um, is there <laughs> if you really want to. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think that mount is just, I'm going to use younger. Uh, it is and it isn't, but it's younger than the Sony uh, mount, right? Because Sony has just, they fully decided, I guess, that they're sticking with the E mount and they're not going to change anything, which is. Um, smart in a lot of ways because that means their lens lineup is massive i mean it's just massive uh, the amount of third-party options you have is incredible when it comes to the sony system so it was kind of smart in a lot of ways now it limited them in other ways and that's why they have the uh, what's it called catalyst catalyst browse is that what you keep yeah so that's why they have the catalyst browse thing for stabilization because their mount is a little small for a full frame sensor it just is um, so it has limited them in that way but it is a huge benefit when it comes to lenses so the L mount, hopefully, um, like Dave's saying, we're just going to see more and more lenses get added to the lineup. You do still have third-party support, unlike Canon, so that is great. So it's a great, it's a it's a great lens system. But I I think I agree. Like if I was, you know, I was fortunate to receive those lenses. Um, but if I was purchasing lenses, I probably uh, to start at least would have gone with those Sigma lenses because Sigma's great and they're they are a little bit cheaper. Absolutely. And I think that ties us into the next um, thing to talk about, which is the build language or the overall body styling. Right. Connor, why don't you take that? Sure. I I think one of the things that um, we really enjoy about the Lumix camera is obviously it looks good with the, especially the X with the all black dot design. But really what we like about it is that it seems to be designed very functionally. Um, It has a very, very nice deep grip. If you're watching the video, uh, you can see the uh, camera. I'm holding it right now. Um, They do have dials on the top, which are very large. It's very easy to um, use them and rotate them. It's very clicky. It's very tactile. 
um, they didn't they didn't seem to put uh, looks over function at all, although it still does look great. Um, I feel like the design language of Sony's is fine, but like Sony has been, it's it's kind of the most lackluster when it comes to the function of the camera, in my opinion. Uh, Canon is obviously wonderful. I've been using the Canon system for a long time. They're, they they still have the best grip, although I think the Lumix grip is very good. Um, I think Canon's grip is still better. Um, they also, you know, the flip screen is very robust. It's It doesn't feel like it's going to break like the uh, Canon C70 flip screen. Sorry, Dave. Um, but it is it is very strong feeling. So I just, I like... I like what they did with this camera. It doesn't, even though they saved a lot of money with some things with this camera because they wanted to keep the price down, which is great for us, you know, means the camera's cheaper. Uh, it doesn't feel like they sacrificed functionality at all. Yeah. And of course, I mentioned earlier, it's got a full sized HDMI jack. It's got the mic input. It's got that um, hot shoe that Panasonic makes that also Sony does something similar. Canon as well does it as well. But you can buy like a little XLR module. And put that on top if you really need XLRs. It's got the white balance and ISO dials right there at your fingertips, which I'm a huge fan of. That is carried over from traditional DSLRs. Um, I remember my Canon 5D had had that built in. Having white balance and ISO at your fingertips like that just makes a lot of sense to me. And it's odd that nobody else seems to do that anymore. Um, so I really like that that's built in. One downside for me in a way is... is um, the dial on the back by your thumb is really easy to hit. And so I found myself, um, kind of that my shutter angle is attached to that dial. And I found myself constantly rubbing up, up against it on my shirt or at my side when it was on a gimbal and kind of jacking up the shutter. And so I kind of wanted to disable that dial there. Are you talking about the dial around the menu button? So if I hold this up. No. No, the one that would be by your top of your thumb, if you... Oh, you're talking about this guy. Yeah, I don't know what that would be called. It's like the back top dial. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So you have a problem Um, where you're you're hitting that accidentally. Yeah, I would like to see maybe, like, uh, I don't know if you remember, but like the Sony um, has those little locks on top of their dials and Fuji as well. Um, I would love to maybe see that built in. Maybe that's the solution is to literally have a, a hardware solution that can lock the dial. That's good um, idea. Or if I could just disable it in the software, I was looking everywhere to just turn it off, turn that dial off mm-hmm. or or change the... Um, I, honestly, I didn't want anything to be able to be operated with that dial because I kept hitting it so many times. And I think, you know, it's a muscle memory thing too. Like obviously I could maybe do a better job of being aware of it. But I just found myself hitting it constantly throughout the day. And I'd look down and my shutter angle would be at like 208 or something. I'm like, ah, no, (laughs) you know. That's interesting because I'm I'm holding it right now and I'm kind of playing around with it. And I don't don't see, the Canon R6 has a dial right there as well. So maybe I'm just really used to that. Um, But I don't mind that at all. I have that programmed for my white balance so that I can quickly change my white balance as needed. So next is, Color science. Um, I think coming from Canon, Connor and I both are, you know, fairly a little <laughs> objective. We're color um, science snobs. <laughs> yeah, we're snobby about it. Um, I never made the switch to Sony because even with the A7S three, I just didn't like it. I, I still, you know, it, it looks very good. Um, I just think Canon has always had the edge. Still, I still think they do. 
Um, the DGO sensor in the C70 looks phenomenal. And of course, you know, the A7S III can get to a really beautiful state as well. I don't want to diminish that. There's a lot of listeners who are all Sony shooters, and I'm not talking bad on you guys. But I still felt like the Canon had the edge. So I was very hesitant to try the Lumix system and use the V-Log system. I've never really used it. And V-Log is really great. It has a lot of dynamic range. The color science looks great out of the camera. And we're living in a modern era where we have RAW recording and 10-bit 422. And we have the color space transforms that you can do now with Resolve and LUTs that are built into the camera. You could do real-time LUTs. So you could essentially transform V-Log to C-Log 2 if you really wanted to. And it's, you know, it's not going to be perfect, but it will match well with a Canon. And we keep talking about our friend Jim Cook because Connor and I both work with this guy and Mm -hmm. he shoots all Canon. And he let me use the Lumix system on our last shoot. And I was kind of curious to see what he thought of the V-Log mixed in with C-Log 3 because he uses the R5 system uh, primarily. And he was really impressed. He said that they matched really well and he had no issues with it. I myself have also found it to be really close to Canon without even doing the color space transform. If you watch my review that I shot with Connor in Japan, there's a sequence where I'm in my studio and I literally compare it side by side to the C70. And honestly, I was really blown away with how close I could match the C70 to the uh, or sorry, the, the S5 to the C70. And that was using Tyler Stallman's LUT, his uh, wonderful C-Log2 LUT. Yeah. And so I'm really impressed with it. I'm currently a fan of the Cine V profile, which I'm using right now. Um, it's kind of like a baked-in profile, but it still has some nice dynamic range built into it. Yeah, it's nice. I just think overall the color looks really good. And... Um, I think it actually has a bit of an edge over Sony, to be honest. I actually think if you're talking about the hybrid camera system, I think the Lumix looks better than Canon. Uh, But that's largely due to the fact that Canon won't give you C-Log 2. So if you're using V-Log and you're using C-Log 3, I think that V-Log looks better, honestly. Um, And in that same regard, I think... I think that like if you're shooting in the most ideal setting, C-Log3 looks fine. Uh, it looks really good. But a lot of times, you know, that's, you don't have that luxury. And I think C-Log3 is just a weak profile. Um, and that's just my opinion. And I think that's where Sony looks better even than Canon in a lot of ways because they're giving you, is it S-Log3 is the good one? Yeah, S-Log3 and then S-Cinetone, <clears throat> which is like their baked-in profile. But yeah, Sony you know, we don't need to go on a tangent about Sony, but I mean, they've, they've really fixed a lot of the issues that people had with their skin tones and with the overall color science. Obviously now we got 10 bit 422 and all that stuff. So again, I don't want to beat a dead horse here. I think Sony looks fantastic. It looks cinematic. It's using Venice color science. There's no even debate that Venice is good or bad because look at all the films and shows that are shot on it. They look fantastic. Top gun, um, top gun baby. And so it's sharing the same, color science, but I still think there's just a look to Canon and and also this whole debate and this whole argument. I think a lot of people who want to get really hyper-technical say that color science doesn't even matter anymore because of the amount of transforming that we can do and the uh, emulation of different film stocks and the pulling and pushing that we can do to get things to look 
like other things. So we are living in a more modern world where color science isn't as much of an issue. But the problem with Canon is that they were not giving us everything. They were only giving us C-Log3. And you're right. I I have a skewed perspective because I'm coming from the C70, which when it's shot at its native ISO, gets like over 15 stops of dynamic range and C-Log2 and the color on the C70 looks fantastic. I was I've always been very, very impressed with it. Yeah. I think it's some of the best image that Canon has ever done. That's why I still hesitate to want to sell it. But I'm finding that the Lumix is just really rock solid. It looks great straight out of the camera. Um, and the V-Log is really malleable and great to use. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm not a colorist. I don't claim to be a colorist. So from the perspective of someone who's just kind of making it work, so take it with a grain of salt, I personally think that the vlog uh the lumix color space is my favorite of the three um that we're we're discussing and i think c-log3 is my least favorite actually um you know it's just what i've had to work with um you're right c-log2 on the c70 looks fantastic though um but yeah color i think color i mean if color is a hesitation for you it shouldn't be i think that this camera really is uh, stellar so let's go on to price i think that's Probably one of the best things about Panasonic is because they're in such a competitive area competing against Canon and Sony, they really kind of put all these great features in there and then they seem to really do a great job with their pricing structure, especially with the S5 II and the 2X. Both of these are hitting well above their weight in that price category. I mean, just for example, the camera that we've been ragging on this entire time that has worse color, um, Apparently, you know, the autofocus isn't as good as Connor remembers. The IBIS wobbles. It's got a mini HDMI port that doesn't allow you to do live streaming. Um, we could go on and on. You know, no shutter angle, blah, blah, blah. The R6 Mark II, which Connor has been talking about this whole time, is more expensive than the Lumix S5 II. And the S5 II has so many more features for video shooters. And then with Sony, the new A, what was it? The ZV-E1 is yeah. more money as well. And it's got a lot of limitations. It does have that wonderful A7S sensor in it, but it overheats and has some issues. Um, it's also got the micro HDMI port. It doesn't have the anamorphic shooting modes. It doesn't have all this other stuff that we were talking about. Another thing with the body with the Lumix that we didn't mention is it does have a fan. So I didn't really think that was much of an issue, but as I was shooting outdoors and it was like, almost a hundred degrees the other day, I was like, man, I'm glad this thing has a fan built in. You know, I was shooting this corporate video where the camera was plugged into the wall, which is a USB-C cable. And I was running it all day. It was a full 10 hour shoot. I never turned the camera off and I never had to hesitate to think, oh, I should maybe turn the camera off to let it cool off. Like the fact that it has a fan built into it is nuts. And it really gives me peace of mind. And I haven't had any overheating warnings or anything with this camera. So yeah. the price bracket at that $2,000 rate is phenomenal. Yeah, I think it's at the end of the day, it's like, well, first I'll say this. I uh, I do occasionally still get overheat warnings on my Canon R6. So that's hilarious to me when I'm shooting in 4K60. Um, but I, I think when it comes to the price of the Lumix, I think it, it, because it's so affordable for what it is, it does in my eyes at least, uh, allow me to give it extra grace. So like those little tiny things, like I had people uh, in the comments of my video where I talked about going to the Lumix system over the Canon system for my personal YouTube content. Um, they were like, 4K 60 crop pff, kills the camera for me. And I'm like, 
really? I'm like, that's, I mean, you know, I don't know what specific work you're doing, but I'm like, man, it's like, it has so many amazing features. And at that price point, it's like, that's the killer feature for you that it's going to keep you from, from buying the camera. And, and maybe it is, maybe they're going to wait for the next Lumix camera to come out that won't have a 4k 60 crop. But I do think that it's priced so competitively that bang for buck, there is not a better camera on the market than the Lumix S5 II and really the S5 IIx, which is $200 more than the regular one. But because you're getting those raw outs, uh, well, actually you get raw outs on the other one, but you have to pay for that as well. So same price. Um, and you, you also get ProRes internal. Um, it's just, it's just, there's, I don't think there's a better camera on the market in that price bracket. Yeah, the, the Blackmagic Pocket cinema cameras have been wildly popular and wildly successful. The 4K um, is still being used to this day. And a, and a friend of mine has the uh, the 6K model, and uh, the 6Ks are still being used. They're a little long in the tooth now in terms of um, feature set, but the image quality out of that thing is amazing. And mm. the price was always one of the most attractive things about the Blackmagic Pocket cameras. Well, now with the Lumix S5 II, I feel like you're getting a lot of the things that the Blackmagic cameras do. And especially if you go up to the 2X, you're getting into that same price category as the 6K Blackmagic. And it can do Blackmagic RAW out just like a Blackmagic camera. It's full frame. It has autofocus, has a flip screen, has IBIS, has an EVF, can also take good photos too. That's the other thing that we talked haven't we, talked about. Yeah, we haven't even mentioned that. I've been using my, uh, because I have the S5 IIx in a cage and it's kind of my primary video tool. I'm, at least that's how I'm treating it. The X is the primary. The, the two is the B cam. I'm using the B, the, the two as a photo camera. So I, you know, I have the 35 millimeter F1.8 on there pretty much all the time. And I use it to take pictures of the kids and it's fantastic. So if, if you're a dad like me, <laughs> you could buy this camera for work and use it for work take it out of the cage and put it on your neck um, at the park. And it's a pretty um, compact-ish uh, setup. It is a little heavy. And I am looking forward to a Micro Four Thirds uh, option from Panasonic for those everyday carry type of um, moments for me personally. Um, and which maybe leads us to our last point, the Lumix Future. Yeah. This is the only camera we've seen. The S5 II and the 2X, which are essentially the exact same camera for the most part, there's so much more to come. And we're still at the beginning of, you know, this whole transition. And I'm so excited to see what Lumix is going to do. If you are a Sony shooter and you are, um, you know, in that ecosystem, I think maybe that's where you see some of those comments. It's like, oh, 4K60, I'm out, you know. Right. If you've already invested tens of thousands of dollars or even, you know, five grand into a system from Sony, yeah, it's it's not enough to jump ship. I do think, however, if you're a Canon shooter, jump ship. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I, I think it's time um, a lot of people who, you know, again, we keep bringing up Jim Cook. Could you imagine if Jim sold all of his R5s and everything and just went to the S5? It, it would really make things a lot easier in some ways with the live streaming capabilities, with this and that. But yeah. he's so used to, you know, the Canon ecosystem, obviously. I, he, he would maybe get pissed off at the autofocus as he well. Wouldn't, he wouldn't be able to do that just because it's not just the hybrid cameras that he's using. He's using C200 still. He's using C70 still. He's using... Yeah. So it's like he has these... He is fully... A, a person like Jim should not switch to the Lumix system. 
um, in my opinion. I think he should stay with Canon. I th- I, it works for what he needs, and it works with the investments that he's made over the last 15 years. Um, yeah. So in terms of that, I think it's, you know, don't don't switch. Um, <laughs> but if you're, maybe you're, you own some Blackmagic Pockets and you're feeling like they're a little long in the tooth, that, this that is would a, be... I think this is a great upgrade from a black magic shooter. I think if you obviously are in the Lumix system and you have a GH5 still and you've been holding out to go full frame, I think now's the time to jump ship to full frame. In fact, the S5 II is, and then using one of these little primes, is actually smaller than the GH6. The body of the S5 II is actually smaller and lighter mm-hmm. than the GH6, which is a micro four thirds camera. Um, that being said, if you're a big fan of Micro Four Thirds and you have a whole ecosystem of Micro Four Thirds lenses from Panasonic, like the wonderful 10 to 25 f 1.8, and you want to continue to use that with all this new stuff with the phase detect, with all these features that we love here, go ahead and just hold out. You know, Lumix has not said that they're killing Micro Four Thirds. A lot of the things that we love about this are going to be carried over into, you know, a supposed GH7 that right. may happen this year or next. Um, I, for one, am really excited, like I said, about future Micro Four Thirds cameras that are small, compact, but still have the amazing IBIS, the amazing autofocus, and some of these other features that we're growing to love here with the S5 II. So the future is looking bright uh, for Lumix because, you know, this is really kind of their mid-tier product. This is their kind of budget-friendly-ish kind of mid-tier thing. It's not the flagship and it's not the budget. Uh, all yeah. the way budget. So this is going to be a lot uh, more to come. This is their R6 Mark II. Uh, you know, this is this is their middle of the road camera. And like you said, I think it's just very exciting to see everything that this camera hasn't compromised on for the price point. It's like, man, when they make that flagship camera, I mean, golly, it's going to be amazing. And I'm really curious to know what's going to be their price point because if they're able to keep the S5 II X cheaper than the R6 Mark II. Um, they're going to be competing against the R5 or the FX3 uh, mm-hmm. price point now for their more flagshipy kind of camera. Maybe you could say the A7 R5 and the Canon R3. Kind of depends on which uh, camera they're deciding to compete with. Um, but I wonder if they're going to be able to beat their price points significantly, like they have with the S5 II yeah. X as well. That would well, be very the- exciting. Well, I, I thought it was interesting that Sony got away with their pricing for the A7S III, and I think it was just because it was so longly um, anticipated and people were just, you know, and it has so much tech in it. But now I think it's a little overpriced because of the technology um, has just advanced so much. But it's $3,500 for right. the A7S III. So I would imagine that they'll look to those types of companies. I think the R5 is a similar price as well. So, you know, R- if R5's they could... R5's a little more. So if they could make an S2H, which is the flagship video focused camera, if they could do that for like, you know, obviously I think 3,500 would be acceptable, but if they could do 2,999, like right under three, that would be nuts, you know, and then you could get the S5 II for a thousand dollars less if you don't need all the features of the 8K and all that stuff that they're going to probably cram in there. Um, But if they could keep it sub $3,000, that'd be nuts. But my kind of guess is that it will be uh, maybe 3500 is maybe my guess. I think, and, and honestly, I think that would be a plenty fair price because realistically, Sony has kind of, 
it's weird. They really have abandoned. It feels like the A7S III. They're kind of like you know that camera. We don't we don't care about that one anymore. Look at the FX3. The FX3 is thirty eight ninety nine, I think, and then I think it's really similar for the R5 as well. So if they're you know those cameras are even more. So I think Panasonic could get away with a four thousand dollar price point on this ca- on this camera this camera that doesn't exist. But what we imagine it'll be, they could probably get away with that. But I do feel like if they were to beat out Canon and Sony by a couple hundred bucks, um, that it would do so well potentially. Yeah, I just I just did a quick Google search, and the R five is thirty four hundred, so it's actually a little less. Than oh, they the dropped A7S. the price. Yeah, but the R five C, which the S the S two H is clearly going to be probably better than the R five C in right. a lot of ways, is thirty nine hundred, so it's okay. almost four thousand dollars. Um, so, I mean, and obviously when you get into the higher end cinema category, prices just go up like a lot. (laughs) So, uh, because it's a niche market, they're not going to sell a ton of units because it's just, it's a smaller demographic than a photographer or budget friendly option, obviously. And Panasonic did tell us that the S5, the original S5 was outselling almost any of their other cameras. Yeah. So, so the, I think that's why they went with the S5 line as the the main kind of launch point here because it's the most popular and i would imagine that it'll, it'll continue to be so and i don't think panasonic's going to just be handing out s2h's to everybody either no and just for context um i think the, those canon cameras that you mentioned the price of they both dropped in price because originally the r5c was uh like 4400 bucks um or maybe even uh, what i'm seeing right here on bnh is that it was originally 4399 and then the R5 gotcha. originally was like 3849. Um they did drop those prices uh just for context. So when cameras initially come out, or when they initially came out, they were more expensive than what Dave just referenced. Yeah, true, true, true. And I think it's important to to note as well, you know, the pricing of lenses. Um I think, you know, if you look at Panasonic, their lenses, like I was mentioning, are lacking some really budget-friendly options, but their high-end options like the Pro Lumix line are fantastic. And then Sigma has very kind of, I think, middle-of-the-road prices, um, if not maybe even a little bit of a budget price for a lot of their options. So, um, And those lens lineups will continue to develop. So I'm excited. I think the future is bright. And um, I think if you're a Canon hybrid shooter primarily focused on video, like literally, you know, 90% of the time you're shooting video on a Canon hybrid camera, sell it, switch. I think it's time. It's great. Um, the lenses are great. The camera looks fantastic. V-Log is way better than C-Log 3. Mm-hmm. The IBIS is better. You get shutter angle. You get that full-size HDMI that you've always wanted. Um, and if you're a Sony shooter and you're very invested in Sony, don't switch. I, I, you know, the Sony is fantastic. Yeah, um, they th- continue to get better and better year over year as well. So I completely agree with that, Dave. Um, I think, I think you're right. If you're in the Sony system and you're happy, stick around. Uh, cause Sony's obviously they care about, you know, their cameras and their customers. And, uh, you know, I've interacted with a bunch of Sony representatives and they do seem to really care about, um, their consumers and and what people want and look forward to in cameras and i think lumix is the same way i think canon it doesn't care <laughs> and i think it's very obvious that they don't care because of the fact that they aren't allowing third-party support on lenses i think that's pretty clear 
Uh, in fact, we talked about this in a previous podcast. If you missed our podcast with Cam Mackey when he switched from Canon system to the Sony system, that was one of his um, main points was the fact that it's like Canon's not supporting third-party lenses. They clearly don't care about their customers. They just care about their bottom line. And at the end of the day, that's going to hurt their bottom line because everyone's going to leave. Um, so you should go listen to that podcast um, if you are interested in that conversation. It was a great well, one. Well, not to totally date this podcast, but maybe you didn't see the news. But um, on June 16th, which wasn't too many, it was five days ago, um, this rumor did come out. It's finally happening. Canon tipped to opening up mirrorless cameras to third-party lenses. So oh. they are in talks with Sigma, Tamron, and other Chinese brands like Laowa to make proprietary lenses for the RF system. So that is kind of being talked about now. They finally have wised up and they're like, eh, yeah, this comp- the competition is getting fierce. So we probably should do something. So that's good to know. It's It's good to see. I guess the pressure, like you said, has finally got to them it's still a pretty poor indicator that it took them this long yes. to do something about it though. So I think the the point still stands if you're on the mm-hmm. Canon system and you're feeling like this camera just, it has those little issues, this little oomph that hurt your, mm-hmm. your, your camera soul, um, <laughs> consider the <laughs> Linux I, system. And, you know, and I'm coming from the fact that I own the C70 and have used that as my primary tool for the last two years. I really really, really love the image that comes out of that camera. I love having built-in NDs. But as I've been using the Lumix system, and you know, I, I, I could have used my C70 in all these other circumstances, I chose to play with the Lumix system to see if I can do the jump. And I think all the advancements with the IBIS, having full frame, actual full frame, and I think just even the size, the way that I shoot, having something that's small and light, like a tiny little hybrid camera compared to the big clunky C70, just made my day so much more enjoyable. And I think because the Lumix has so many of the pro video features like waveforms, like shutter angle, like these great autofocus modes that, that can help assist you. It makes the switch going from an actual true cinema camera to a hybrid camera much easier and much more doable because a lot of the things that make cinema cameras great are actually built into this hybrid system. The only thing that I really, really wish it had is built-in NDs. And I don't know if that's ever going to happen with a hybrid camera. I would love to see that come to hybrid systems. I just don't know if that's physically possible. Um I don't know. We'll see. I mean, if think about it. If they make that S1H variant kind of camera with Lumix and they can somehow stick in, even if it's electronic, VND, something similar to the FX6, if they can stick that in a hybrid camera, oh, man, I think that would just make destroy. That would destroy the market. Yeah, the, the cinema market in general. Yeah. So um, I think I am finally going to put the C70 up for auction. I may send it into Canon first and have them fix the screen because it's got a wobbly screen. Yeah. So if I send it in, I could maybe have them clean it up. If I post it on eBay, I could be like newly serviced, screen fixed, you know, straight from Canon. Might help with the sell a little bit. Uh, I may even post it on Twitter if any of you guys who follow me would be interested in a C70. It's a wonderful tool, and if you already own a C70, the best B camera to a C70 is another one, obviously. So, um, 
yeah. you know, I would love to see time code coming to these cameras as well, like proper time code. That's something that I've been using a lot with the tentacle system. So, um, but this show went a lot longer than we were expecting, Connor. Should we skip the other topics? Yeah, I was going to say, I think um, we Maybe did. Maybe the switch. Did, this really became the, the Lumix uh, podcast. Uh, we were going to talk about the Hollyland system because I've been using those recently. And also Nintendo Direct came out um, as of today, also the date of the podcast. So we were going to talk about that. But honestly, I think that you know we've we've rambled on long enough. I think maybe we put yeah. a we put a pin in those uh, other conversation topics uh, for maybe next week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Nintendo Direct may not be relevant in a week. <clears throat> I'll just say real quick: there's like two new Mario games. There's the Mario RPG, which is a remake of uh, SNES game, which looks like a lot of fun. And then there's a, a proper new 2D Mario game called Mario Dream, I think, or something. Yeah, something like that. It looked um, cool. It looks cool, um, yeah. but I think just overall the Switch is really showing its age, um, and I just hope Nintendo will make something new soon because um, the games look like a lot of fun, but it's just more of the same. The graphics are just <laughs> like pushed to their extreme at this point, and it doesn't look like anybody's doing anything new or revolutionary here with the Switch. That's not to say that the games are still a ton of fun to play. I play Mario Kart at least once or twice a week um, on my Switch. So I'm a huge fan. Connor's super into Zelda right now with the new Zelda system. So, I mean, if that's for, <laughs> if that tells you anything, like Nintendo knows what they're doing. Cause like, even with an old outdated system, here we are still using it uh, on a weekly basis, if not daily for you, Connor, cause you're playing Zelda. So I don't know about daily, but I do play it somewhat frequently because that Zelda game is great. Um, that is the, I think that's the game that pushes the system to its absolute limit mm -hmm. i think that it could probably not do much more than that um you know like we said we weren't going to get too much into this but i'll just quickly say i think i think nintendo is a little scared to release a new system they have kind of an up and down swing um when it comes to the console launches like they had the um snes which was wildly popular and then they had the nintendo 64 and gamecube which in my opinion were great consoles but it was a down downward swing for them and then they had the nintendo wii which was wildly successful um hugely successful and then they had the nintendo wii u which was abysmal and now they have the nintendo switch which is doing very very well so i think they're afraid that the next console they release might be that downward um that downward swing and so they're they're probably you know, they probably have something designed they probably it might even be fully playable they're just holding on to that because they want the switch to play out for as long as possible mm. I, I, that's my theory i don't know if it's true yeah i mean nintendo is so good at kind of innovating with gimmicky things and i could totally see them going into vr like <laughs> as their next venture of that would like be wild a nintendo headset that is you know but then you've got the the wonderful game developers Within Nintendo, doing full Zelda, full Mario, f whatever with Dude, VR, a full VR Pokemon game. Yes, <laughs> that'd be crazy. So I, I, I don't know. That, that was just a obviously. I'm just speculating or whatever. But um, the Switch, I think they really tapped into something because they basically were able to discontinue the DS or you know the Game Boy line because now the one device is not only a home console but it's also a portable. So I think they really found the perfect kind of combination with that. And I think they'll probably continue whatever that is into the future. Um, I just think if they had a little bit more power, a little bit more juice on the system, imagine what the developers could do 
with um, these games. They're they're already so creative with the way they come up with games. I think that's what makes them so unique is that the the actual Nintendo released games are just so well made for the most part. The Pokemon games are not. Um, <laughs> but, no, they're not. It's sad. But uh, imagine if there was a little bit more horsepower in there. Uh, that'd be really fun, but we'll see. Yeah. Anyways. Well, that, that about does it for this episode of the Golden Hour Podcast. If you haven't left a rating and review in the Apple Podcast player, I would like to encourage you to please do so. It really means a lot to us. It helps us get discovered. We're wanting to take this show even more seriously as we move forward. So any review or rating or thumbs up that you can give us um, really helps us out. If you have any suggestions for future show topics, we'd love to hear it. So reach out to us at ghp.fm slash contact and you could send us an email i'll be the one receiving that so if you want to send me a message i'll read that you could just say hey dave that would work too (laughs) and um of course you know check out connor's channel connor mccaskill he's posting content on his youtube channel and stay tuned i will be launching something very soon ish been saying that for a year now (laughs) once again i am your host david altizer along with connor mccaskill and we'll see you next week. See you guys.